I pointed out to you that this book provides one of the clearest and most beautiful historical shadows of God's redemptive uh, purpose displayed within the Old Testament. There are several things that we considered from this passage as we were considering the overview of the book itself. Uh, First, we considered the circumstances surrounding this account in verse 1. The scripture says, now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. I told you that the word now, at the beginning of the book, the very first word of the book, uh, points us back to the previous book of Judges, in which the final verse of Judges states, in Judges 21-25, in those days there was no king in Israel, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And I was explaining to you, of course, that in, when there's no king, as it's listed in Judges, and then, of course, that's the last verse of the entire book of Judges coming in into Ruth, now when Judges ruled, that when there's no king, as God intended for it to be, that chaos, of course, ensues. And we find that to be true as well, even in uh, the account of uh, Ruth. But not only is it true historically concerning Ruth, but as well, we understand that the king uh, who rules over Israel, the king who rules over the world, the king who rules over all mankind, of course, is Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is king of kings and lord of lords. And the fact of the matter is that even David, as we looked at briefly last week, was God's choice for the first king of Israel. Now, Saul, we know, was the first king, but it was David who was God's choice as it became evidently clear. And also, David was a, a shadow or type for, foreshadowing the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the king. And we find that even true in the fulfillment of Scripture in the New Testament, where the Scriptures speak about David um, in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ, or him being, of course, the forefather of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you will, Jesus being the son of David, and so on and so forth. And so we see that connection is made throughout the Scriptures. And in Judges 21, 25, again, it tells us when there was no king in Israel, and this is talking about a physical king reigning, if you will, that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And so chaos inevitably will ensue whenever we do not bow to he who is king. And, and that is true across the board. Then he goes on to say that there was a famine in the land. The previous conditions uh, led to a famine in the land. God had warned Israel, as we saw last week in Leviticus twenty six eighteen through 20, that he would judge the land because of sin. And it is quite evident here that the Lord was using the famine to get the attention of his people, to judge them, to correct them, and to draw them back to himself. Then we looked, secondly, at the characters within the book. Chapter 1, verses 2 and 4. Chapter 2, verse 1, we see we're told the name of the man was Elimelech. And the name Elimelech, it means God is king. It references that truth. The name of his wife, Naomi, which means pleasant. And the name of his two sons, Malon and, and Kilion. The name of Malon means sick or ill. And the name Kilion means to perish or to be determined to fail. Verse 4 it tells us that they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah. And the name Orpah refers to the top of the head, nap, or back of the neck. And then the name of the other was Ruth. And the name Ruth, it means to drink one's fill or to be refreshed. It also references a female companion, which of course was true of Ruth in relationship to Naomi. Then chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a mighty man of wealth, of the family, family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. Now, Boaz, again, is a shadow, if you will, of the Lord Jesus. As we look at his name, we find some interesting truths I pointed out last week. The name Boaz comes from an unused root of uncertain meaning, 
and, and Boaz, the ancestor of David, also the name of the, a pillar in front of the temple. And I told you last week how the, the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, cannot be de- defined by man's terminology or language. And he, as well as the ancestor of David, he is the pillar of and the cornerstone of the church, as the scriptures clearly teach us within the New Testament. Then third, we looked at the countries involved. Chapter 1, verse 1, a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah. The name Bethlehem, Judah means house of bread. Now, interestingly enough, there was a famine in the land, though this is the house of bread. And let me make a side note here, just, just something to consider, if you will. Uh, we, as, as the church of the Lord Jesus, we are stewards of the gospel. It is the very bread of life, the bread from heaven himself, the Lord Jesus who has redeemed us, who dwells within us. And yet, is it not true, even so, that this meaning, when we gather together as God's church, as the people of God gathering, there should be bread that is presented. The word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, should be magnified as he is revealed in his word. And yet, is it not somewhat ironic that just like Bethlehem Judah, with the name meaning house of bread, that in so many instances, even the gathered so-called body of the Lord Jesus Christ, or churches that they gather, that there tends to be and seems to be a horrific famine of the truth of God and the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, when this is the place, meaning not a building, but the gather of, gathering of the body of Christ should be the place wherever that is, that there is an abundance of spiritual food, an abundance of spiritual provision and bread. I, I, I love what a friend of mine says, and he said this years ago, and, and it stuck with me ever since, that we are simply beggars telling other beggars where we have found bread. And that's exactly what we are. We are just people that are desperate, who are telling other desperate people where we have found provision in the Lord Jesus Christ, that eternal provision. And so we see that this house of bread, there's actually a famine that is present. But there's a reason for that. And of course, we understand that reason to be that the people are in rebellion against God. They have sinned. They're doing that which is right in their own eyes. And all that being stated, God is, again, correcting them, chastening them. Therefore, there is a famine that is present. And that famine, of course, is affecting the whole. Then we saw as well, it goes on to say that he went to sojourn, Elimelech and his family, in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name Moab refers to a land on the other side of Jordan, as I've mentioned, and the Lord gives us a peculiar description of Moab in Psalm 108.9 when he says, Moab is my washpot. This gives reference, of course, to a place that God loathed or God hated, obviously. And so we understand that uh, Moab was not a place where these people were meant to be. We're going to look more into that in a few moments. So having set the stage for this beautiful shadowing of redemption that we find in the Old Testament, we begin our study in verse 1 with the departure from God's place of blessing. Look at verses 1 and 2 again with me. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah, And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. Now, Elimelech did not just awake one day and decide to go to Moab, but attempted to escape the judgment of God by his departure. And we have to remember something. Our actions are a result and as well a manifestation of the condition of our hearts. What we do, what we say, how we are, 
is revealing of what and who we are, how we really think. Remember, if you will, obviously, as it's been well said, that we cannot look into someone else's heart. And that's true. I mean, I don't, we cannot look at any one individual and say with absolute certainty, no questions asked, that we know absolutely that that person knows the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's a personal relationship. But again, though salvation is always personal, it's never private. And so those who do know the Lord Jesus Christ will demonstrate and manifest the evidence of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is evidence. That's what it is. It's evidence towards that truth. And so I believe there are those I can look at and say, I believe this person is a brother or sister, no questions asked. But again, I cannot literally see inside of them. I can only see what's manifested. But Scripture says this, though we cannot see within the heart, we do know this, that Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So the, the mouth, that which comes forth from one's mouth is an overflow of what's within their heart. If you are around someone whose hatred and, and evil and wickedness is constantly just coming out of them, that's because they have a heart that's unregenerate in all probability. If you're around someone who is constantly uh, speaking and, and it's hypocritical, everything they say, that's because there is a heart of hypocrisy within them. If you're around someone who is constantly referencing, referring to, and speaking of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God, His truth, and, and, and from a heart, uh, uh, and words of rejoicing in the truth of God, then that, in all probability, is someone who has a heart of righteousness because of Christ dwelling within them. The point is that we can literally see within someone, it's out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. So in one sense of the word, no pun intended, the fact of the matter remains that the heart or the mouth is somewhat of a window into the heart. It gives us insight into what's within someone. If you find someone who's constantly complaining, constantly griping, constantly in that spirit, it doesn't mean that person's not redeemed necessarily, but it does mean this, that is a person that is not very thankful because there's not thankfulness coming from them from within their heart. And so we have to understand that though, again, we can't peer into someone's heart, into their very mind, the reality remains that that which is within is going to come out. And so as someone speaks, what consumes them? I've often said to you that the reality is that, that your, your mouth or your conversation will betray you because it's going to reveal in reality, no matter what you may attempt to look like or how you may attempt to present yourself, what you are consumed with or what you are passionate about and with is going to flow from your lips. You're going to talk about those things. You're going to be consumed with those things. And so that's what we find to be a a truth, really, pretty much across the board. And so our actions, what we do, what we say, is going to be indicative of how we think and what we are thinking. And so when Elimelech went to Moab, this was not just some random choice or some someday woke up. No, he intentionally set his face to go this route. He was going this direction. Now, we're told in verse 1 again, a certain man of Bethlehem Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, the verb sojourn, interestingly enough, it means to dwell, but it means to dwell as alien and dependent. Now, this is an interesting statement. Sojourn doesn't simply mean, oh, he went just to go for a, a moment of time. No, he went to dwell there, and he went as one who did not belong there. He's an alien. This is not his home, and yet he goes to dwell there, and 
is dependent upon them. That's what this literally means, to sojourn. So he moved there, and why do you do that? Because there was a famine in Bethlehem, Judah. Physically speaking, the provision that was needed was not present, at least he didn't believe it was, due to the famine. So he goes to where there is provision, but he's going somewhere other than that of his home. He's going to dwell somewhere that he is an alien, he's a foreigner, he's a stranger, and furthermore, he is becoming dependent on Moab for his life. Are you seeing a problem here? There's someone else in the scriptures who did something very similar to this. Do you remember who that was? Anyone remember? Do you remember when Abraham went to Egypt? God didn't tell Abraham to go to Egypt. Abraham went to Egypt because he thought the provision in Egypt was better than that which was at home or when I say home, where God was leading him to go, and yet he left God's leading and directing to go to Egypt. And again, let me remind you of a truth here I think that's often overlooked. Many people go, oh yeah, but when Abraham left Egypt, of course he spared Sarah from, from Pharaoh and such, and that's true. And he also spared Sarah again. Twice Abraham offered up Sarah on the altar of self-preservation. So again, I remind you, ladies, before you start wishing you had a husband like Abraham, you better remember what he actually did. <laughs> and he offered up Sarah twice on the altar of self-preservation. He thought of himself a whole lot more than he thought of her. And so the fact of the matter is that Abraham, though, when he went to Egypt, people say, oh, he left Egypt, he was blessed. He and Lot and all those, uh, those with him, and they left with more abundance than they came with. And, and Pharaoh and the Egyptians sent them away full. And, but remember something before you start thinking that that's God's blessing to Abraham it was the very provision in which, with which Abraham left and Lot left Egypt that was the source of contention that divided them and then left Lot's family, his wife, as a pillar of salt, remember? And all types of issues in Lot's life from that point forward because of all that provision that he left Egypt with. And it's interesting to note that, to consider that. Now, did God still use all that in his purpose? Absolutely. But remember something. Uh, physical provision itself is not necessarily evidence of someone being in God's will. And, in, and, and physical and temporal and monetary provision itself is not always uh, a, a, an evidence that someone is being blessed of God, as they, many claim or think it to be. Even if it's something that has been gained honestly, that doesn't mean that's necessarily what it is. Now, God does bless. There's no doubt about that. And God provides for us, absolutely. But I'm saying to you, if we're not careful, we forget this. And we should never forget this. We can't afford to forget this. That the blessing of God is in Jesus Christ. And anything that God gives us in provision, and yes, that God is blessed in that respect, that he provides for us. I'm not uh, marginalizing that at all. But I'm saying to you, don't think that that's evidence of God's love and evidence of God's blessing. God's blessing is in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And so it's important to remember that. Elimelech left his home in Bethlehem, Judah, because of this famine, and the reason for the famine was the national rebellion of Israel. But Elimelech, as we see, did not belong in Moab. But yet he went there because he thought provision was better there than where he was. Let me remind you of something. We do not belong to this world. 
In 1 John 2, 15-17, John wrote and said, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Remember this about what John is saying. John's not saying we can't have provision. He's not saying you can't own anything or you cannot invent. No, what John is saying is that we are not to love the worldly system, we're not to love the wickedness in the world, and that we're not to allow things of the world to consume us. There's one thing about possessions that we must always remember. It is not necessarily, and I say necessarily intentionally, it is not necessarily sin to have possessions, but it is always sin when we become possessed by things. In John 17, 14 through 17, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed. He said, I have given them thy word. He's speaking of his disciples. And the world hath hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Verses later, Jesus goes on to explain. I pray not only for them, but also all those who will believe by their testimony, by their word. And he, he speaks, of course, of those who are the sheep that are not of this fold. And so Jesus is talking about all those who would believe that he's praying not the Father take them out of the world or us out of the world, but rather that he keep us from the evil that is in the world. Hence, love not the world and the things that are in the world. Elimelech thought it would be in the best interest of his family to leave God's place of blessing and where God had placed him. And he thought that due to the hardships that he was experiencing. We have to remember, too, that Moab was not a great distance from Bethlehem, Judah. However, it was across the Jordan River, and it represents a place of crossing over uh, into the victorious Christian life. Uh, Many believers, again, due to hardships and trials, will quickly think it better for themselves and for their families to leave the place that God has planted them or to not follow after the Lord and His truth and His Word because we, we tend to think that we may know better than the Lord knows at this time because of the situation. You know, it's not uncommon to hear someone say something along the lines of, well, I, I just I, I did this because you just don't understand the situation I was in. Listen to me, please. Situations do not change truth. And circumstances do not change truth. And the fact of the matter is that truth is absolute and that what we go through or the hardships that we face in no way should ever, ever bring us to disobedience or to thinking that we know better than God. We are to be submissive to the Lord. We are to follow as He has placed us in Christ. In other words, obviously, we cannot afford to neglect to submit ourselves to the Lord and His purpose and even that of His church. 1 Corinthians 12, 18, Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, But now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it pleased Him. Even when it comes to the local body, and this is not about local body alone, but even when it comes to the local body, the, the church of the Lord Jesus, God places members where it pleases Him for His purpose to be fulfilled within that body. And that's so important for us to remember. And I say this to you, that even as a local body, as a pastor of a local body here, it, it, it is not that we need more provision and more people. and We need more submission to the Lord, and God will work in and through us that which He has purposed to do. God will provide and place people as it pleases Him to do to meet the need for His purpose to be fulfilled. And we must remember that. Might I say to you like this, just to to kind of 
illustrate, in a sense, from a perspective maybe of Elimelech. Elimelech is facing hardship and trial, and so he says, you know, it's better to be over here. So he, he, he is in disobedience to the Lord, obviously, and we see that by the results of all that took place, and Naomi going back, being broken. But God restores her when she's back where she's supposed to be, but yet we find that she is broken. And she's lost her husband, she's lost her sons, and now all that's left is Ruth, who was just is a female companion to her, will not depart. And so we see that Naomi comes back very broken, as you are aware, and she even says, call me Mara, which of course is out of bitterness, and rather than that which is blessed, or that which is pleasant, and so on and so forth. But yet we see that she leaves with her husband, of course, under his leadership, and with their sons, and going to this place that they did not belong, they were aliens, they were strangers, and they did it because of the hardship that was present, thinking that this was better, but obviously finding out in the end it was not. Even if there was provision at the moment, it ended up being their death. All but Naomi, that is, of her family, her immediate family. And so it, it cost her everything. Now, it was not her choice to go, I understand, but I'm saying we see this reality that it was not a better way to go than that which the Lord had, had provided, even in his chastening. And so if, if we're not careful... We can come to the point as well, like I mentioned, to where we begin to believe that we know what's better in this situation, or we begin to become dependent on the world rather than on God. Let me say this to you, and and I know this was all in God's purpose unfolding. The reality of it is, when they went their own way, they died. Even if they would have died in Bethlehem, Judah... At least they would not have, and Naomi would not have had, had to have returned and said, call me Mara. I, I, I'm, I've come back bitter. I've come back empty. And instead of that, she would have still been among her people, if you will, and within the blessings of God, because when they came back, guess what? Her same friends who they left were still there, and they were alive, and God had provided for them, even through the chastening times or even through the time of of God's judgment. Remember something as well, that even in the judgment of God as children of God, in a New Testament setting, we understand that God chastens out of his love, and it's not for our destruction, it's for our benefit. It's for our spiritual growth and maturity and to depend on him. So what's happened is they go to Moab as a stranger, as an alien, as a foreigner, and are dependent on Moab rather than dependent on God. I might remind you, there were plenty of those who stayed in Bethlehem, Judah, and guess who they were dependent on? The Lord. They remained there. They were dependent on God. And guess what God did? Obviously, he provided. Now, I'm not saying everyone lived. I don't know. And that, that's not to say that they did. But I will say that there were those who did who were dependent on God. And even if God were to take their lives, he took the lives of Naomi's family as it was, even in the land of Moab. Verse 2. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. So here Elimelech is sojourning, which again means to dwell as an alien and becoming dependent, and then he continues. So as he journeyed, and what he thought may be a better place with good intentions even of thinking he's going to provide for his family, it ended up to not only be to his own demise, but also the demise of his family. It is true that our hearts are prone to grow cold and indifferent. 
But might I remind you something? God never intended for us to live looking back, but rather looking forward. I said a moment ago that Moab was and, and Bethlehem Judah are separated, of course, by the Jordan. And the Jordan is not crossing over into heaven, crossing over. No, it's the promised land. What is the promised land? A land full of giants, of walled cities, and of plenty of enemies and opponents and struggles. But what is it? It's where God says, I will go before you, and if you are submissive to me, I will give you victory. No man can stand before you. Is that not true? The only time Israel was ever defeated in in any type of battle, in any type of conflict, is whenever they were not obedient to God. Otherwise, God says, I'm going to pave the way before you. I will go before you. I will fight your battles. I will be your victory. But whenever they failed to submit to him, then they suffered greatly. I'm reminded as well in the Old Testament of the account of Achan, if you recall. Now he hid the he hid the the gold and such and the garments and all that in his tent. And they go out to fight a battle thinking this is an easy victory and end up coming back defeated. And and the statement is made, there is sin in the camp. Because Joshua goes to the Lord and says, Lord, I don't understand. Why why did we suffer defeat? And the Lord says to Joshua, there's sin in the camp. And, And Joshua comes to the people and says, there's sin in the camp. And Achan was the one who was guilty. And he and his family were destroyed because of this sin. And by the way, it was a hidden sin. It wasn't something public. It was something he had done in private that was hidden away. And God, destroyed, God, God many, many lost their lives and they suffered defeat. And yet, it was all because of the sin that was present. And so I'm, I'm saying to you that we are not to be dependent upon Moab. We are not to be dependent upon the world. We are not to be dependent upon our own abilities. We are not to be dependent upon our own, our own wisdom, our own knowledge, our own understanding. Whether we are to remain dependent upon God. For it is God who is our provision and has provided for us in our Savior. Philippians 3.13, Paul wrote, Brethren, I count on myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth into those things which are before. Paul refused again to look back to that which he once thought gain as his own righteousness, as we've recently studied through our, our morning series through Philippians. Due to recognizing the blessings of God's provision of righteousness in our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul had previously declared in just verses prior, as you know these, Philippians 2, 7 through 9, but what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ, yea, doubtless I had to count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, chapter 3, that is, I'm sorry, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and to count them but dung that I may win Christ, and be found in him and not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Here's what we're seeing by Paul, and this is what we see, remember Lot's wife, looking back. We also see with Moab, with, with them going back over the Jordan, rather than remaining on this side of the Jordan, they go back over the Jordan, back to that which was, rather than that which is. And there's nothing worth looking back to regarding that from which God has taken us. We have been delivered from the grasp of sin and the world. And what could possibly be better Despite the hardships, even the moments of chastening, what could be better than living in the freedom of Christ and the provision of Christ? There is nothing. There is nothing. Then we also see the consequences of departing or the departure from God's blessings. Verses 3 through 5. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons, and they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. And Malon and Kilion died also, both of them, and the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. We must not ever believe that there is no consequence to our departure when we sin against God. You know the verses, Galatians 6, 7, and 8, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall the flesh reap corruption. He that soweth to the Spirit shall the Spirit reap life everlasting. 
We understand that, that sin carries consequence. And even in the life of the believer, sin still carries consequence. That's still true. We've been delivered from the punishment and penalty of sin. That's absolute. But it doesn't mean that we do not suffer for our own actual sins. And that we will not experience chastening of God. Verse 3, Elimelech, and Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, we're told. Because Elimelech refused to hear and heed the word of God, of course, we see that the Lord took his life. Now you say, well, that not that somewhat assumption? No, Elimelech left of his own doing. We're not told that Elimelech was following God in his direction. And the very name, meaning, of course, are referring to the fact, implying that God is king. But here's what we find. Elimelech is ruling his own life and house at this point. He's doing what he believes to be best. Then we're told, verse 5, Malon and Kilion died also, both of them. Once God had taken the life of Elimelech due to his rebellion, his sons continued in the footsteps of their father. Notice, Naomi didn't leave either, but his sons didn't leave. None of them left. They stayed there another 10 years. They were there for 10 years, the scripture says. They married wives of Moab. They had no intentions of heading back to the land of promise. They had grown accustomed to the way of life in Moab and were content to live there. And because they were content to live there, they also died there. It's important that we understand God has provided for us in Christ. He has placed us in Christ. He has placed us within his body. And we are to be dependent upon Christ and Christ alone and be content in Christ and the provision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, there is nothing that tells us that we will not die due to persecution. There's nothing in Scripture that guarantees us that we're not going to suffer through hardships of life as a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, the opposite is promised to us. That there's going to be opposition. There's going to be struggle. There's going to be trouble. There's going to be trial. And I will say to you, if you just go with the world, if you just follow after the world, you will not suffer in the same way in this life as you will when you walk and follow after righteousness as a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ. But let me remind you of something. For those who live after this world in the way of the world, they will suffer an eternity without Christ. While those who follow after Christ will live in His glory. So what can be compared to that? Nothing. Then we see, third, the return to the place of God's blessing. Verses 6 and 7. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Oh, wait a minute. So, so where'd the bread come from? From the Lord. The Lord gave them, he visited his people in giving them bread. It is the Lord who blessed his people. It is the Lord who visited his people. Did the Lord just leave them in a destitute state? Did the Lord just leave them without provision? Did the Lord allow them to suffer to the point that he was not going to sustain their life? No. He visited his people. He gave them bread. Wherefore, verse 7, she went forth out of the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return unto the land of Judah. Once Elimelech died and their two sons died, Naomi is then left to do what she would. And by this time, there was a longing and a desire within her heart to return back to the homeland. The, the wages of sin, if you will, had taken their toll in her life. The wages of sin is death, and death has taken its toll in her life. Though she is not dead, her, her husband's dead, her two sons are dead. And we find in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, which we've not read, And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi, but call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. 
I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Now let us consider this as well. Here they are going out full, meaning her family. She's not talking about provision and food. They left because there was a famine. She says, I thought it was bad to not have food. She said, but I have found out it's much worse to not have my family. And they suffered this because of Elimelech's choice and sin, going out full and coming back empty, but now coming back to the place where God is blessed. Let me remind you again that failure to submit to the Lord is always costly in all of our lives. What began as a hopeful uh, dwelling in a land of plenty wound up costing Naomi, her family, plenty. We must remember that sin will reap havoc in the hearts of those who harbor it. Where there is a lack of submission to the Lord, there's going to be consequence. Verse 22 says, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. (laughs) They're coming back at the very time where there is a harvest that is being reaped. But if the harvest is being reaped, it was sown prior to this. And they've missed out on this whole time of God's blessing and replenishing and restoring, which now God is still faithfully restoring Naomi and bringing Ruth with her. And here's where this is a beautiful shattering of redemption and God's work of restoration. Though there was a price to pay, we see that clearly outlined in what we've already read this evening. There was still forgiveness when Naomi sought for it. Naomi's repentance is not seen in her words or her thoughts, but in her actions. What did Naomi do? She returned. Hear me, it's not about what people say, it's not about what we say. I said the heart, obviously, that which flows from our mouth is a a glimpse into the heart. But listen, repentance, if you will, is not simply someone making a statement. It is the heart being changed, the mind being changed. In salvation, it's the mind being changed from unbelief to belief. And for those who are already redeemed, it's the mind being returned back and renewed continually to submission when we were not in submission to the Lord. And here we see she returned. And I believe we we are reminded of this wonderful truth. That God has made provision for us in our failures. God has made provision for us even in our sin. God has provided everything necessary for us to live in righteousness, and He has. There are moments where we all must admit and confess before God and even before each other that we fail to do so. Every step I take is not righteous. Every act I, I act is not righteous. Every word I say is not righteous. And guess what? Neither are yours. And that being the case... Despite that truth, God graciously provides for us to be restored to fellowship with Him. In 1 John 1, 9 and through 2, 1, or 1, 9 and 2, 1, we see the Scripture says, you know this verse, if we confess our sins as believers concerning fellowship with God, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Chapter 2, verse 1, John goes on to say, My little children, these things write unto you, that ye sin not. He's saying, God has made provision for us not to sin. We don't have to sin. We do sin. 
He goes on to say, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Naomi left full with her family to a land where there was plenty, only to be stripped completely of her family, to be left empty. That God would bring her back. She would return back to the place of his blessing where he's visited his people, where he's provided them food. And notice what's going to end up being the case. Yes, Naomi lost Elimelech. Yes, Naomi lost Malon and Kilion. And yes, Naomi lost Orpah because Orpah did not return with her. But she gained Ruth, which then marries Boaz, which then produced offspring, which ends up being, of course, the grandfather of David. So look at what was gained. Look at how God restores. Look at how God blesses throughout this process, even though they had sinned. I believe I'm reminded of this song whenever you think about what's happening in this woman. This is a historical account and record of Naomi, of Elimelech, of Malon, Kilion, of Ruth, of Orpah, of Boaz, and, and so on and so forth. So this really happened. This is actually something that happened. But we can glean as we begin to consider how that as well we see God's redemptive work in our own lives, in that of Naomi's, in that of Ruth's, in that with Boaz and marrying Ruth and so on and so forth, and this wonderful picture of redemption that we see, an act of redemption we see. But yet we also reminded of this work of redemption in our own lives. And God is faithful to restore, and God is faithful to continue to allow us to experience and enjoy His great spiritual provision and blessing in Christ despite our sin, despite our failures. And I'm reminded of the song with which we as well can sing with the writer, O love that will not let me go. Because God's love is that which is going to continue to draw us to himself, to, that we might experience his forgiveness that's already been granted, but we experience that forgiveness as God is working this redemption, perfecting this redemption in and through our lives. And let me show you God's purpose in this again. God's not playing catch up in all of these matters. Even in the midst of Elimelech leaving the place he should have been, he dying, his children dying, Orpah leaving, God is ultimately fulfilling his redemptive work because it's going to be through Ruth and Boaz and that lineage that David is born, and more importantly, through that lineage, the Lord Jesus Christ enters into the world. How much clearer could redemption be than that? And all this is in the midst of their failure, their sin, their rebellion, the consequence of the national rebellion, which brings about the famine in their land, And yet God still visited his people, and he didn't just visit the people. Please pay attention. This is so important. He didn't just visit the people who remained in the land. He brings Naomi back to the land that she might as well enjoy the provision and blessing of God and his purpose being fulfilled. Is that really not our story? God is faithfully doing that in us as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this truth.